The only mistake you can make about prejudice against patients is not to recognize your problem. The last thing that you want is the CEO to know that there are some interpersonal problems related to you. They have no sympathy for that. Would you rather him take care of the patient or write on the paper? Hey, Rick Bicotta, Greg Henry. It is the June issue 2016 of Risk Management Monthly. And are we doing this over Skype? No, no, no. No, no, no. We're live together. And unfortunately, if we were doing it over Skype, I would be back in Michigan. We're at somewhere. I mean, you know, you realize the ice flows in Lake Michigan haven't totally thawed yet. No, we're here in Las Vegas because we're doing the PA boot camp course. And Las Vegas is having one of the warmest Junes of, of the century. It is, what What do they say? It's only 106. I'm looking at my phone. Come on. 106. Stop, stop whining. Oh, God, yeah. Why would, I, why would I do something like that? All right. Enough, enough self-promotion. Let's move on. First thing is an alert. Oh, wait. wait. Before, before we stop self-promotion, <laughs> I do want to thank... The guys who have helped out on this course, there's 550 people downstairs listening to the, uh, these people. There's uh, Billy, Billy Mallon, Jan Schoenberger, and Kevin Clower, and Randy Danielson, who's the dean of the A.T. Still PA School down in Phoenix. The new guys coming on for tomorrow and the next day are you, me, Michael Gooch. We're going to do the last of this by, by ourselves. We're going to knock this out of the park, Rick. By the way, you did not mention Diane Birnbaumer. Oh, I who, didn't? Uh, no, you did not, and we have to mention that her. That was really bad. Yeah, Diane is is has been a stalwart person running this course now for the last few years, and so thank you, Diane, for all you do t- to make this thing work. All okay. right. Special alert. We're going to the uh, paper which are the article which is published this month in Emergency Physicians Monthly by Michael Silverman. And uh, it's worth reading because it's how to handle the patient who refuses discharge. Each one of us in our career has had somebody who, uh, quite frankly, doesn't want to leave. Now, you know, if you're at the country bars, about two in the morning they say, Uh, You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I like that line, and it's what I use all the time in the emergency department. You know, really, you ought to have some place to go. So what are the issues that come up with somebody who refuses? Well, I mean, I think one has to be a little bit cautious here and step back. There are several reasons they refuse to leave. One of them is they actually may be sicker than you think they are. The last thing you need is to have a confrontation with somebody visible to all who then comes back in a day later with CPR in progress. That's never a good thing. Secondly, they they will eventually find families. They will do this and that in some states like Michigan. When we put them out the door, it is cold sometimes and uh, they do have to have a place to go. I think that Mike Silverman takes the right approach in this and basically says, be cautious, go slow. They can always sit in the waiting room. They can always go someplace close by, maybe not occupying a bed which you need, but by the same token, to just give them the bums rush and throw them out does have potential medical legal liability, and we at least 
ought to pay attention to it. Now, on a humanitarian basis, when I, when I look over all of these people I've seen over the years, this is a crowd of burned-out schizophrenics, alcoholics, guys who used to do drugs and don't, don't even have the money for them anymore. This is a sad, lonely group of people. And I think that uh, sometimes we got to take just that little extra step and, and help them gently out the door. Now, we'd like them to leave. We're going to see if we can solve some of their problems. We can sick social work on them. We can do a lot of things to help move them out the door. But I think if, if it comes to the point of physical Mm-mm. Uh, restraint, Mm-mm. don't go there. I, I, I just wouldn't go there. I, I don't think that it, it sends the right message or that we're always right. I mean, we're not always right. I like the idea of letting them go back to the waiting room. Particularly during the night, there's generally not a lot of people, unless your your hospital is so screwed up that your waiting room is packed at night. But in any case, there's always a seat for one more person. And uh, when the sun comes up, a lot of good things happen. You know, that's exactly (laughs) true. All kinds of resources. The sun is like magic in emergency departments. People come in, you get back up, there are phone numbers you can call. There's all kinds of things that happen. And so uh, I, th- I think our warning here is uh, uh, be gentle, be kind. If, if nothing else works, again, stick them in the waiting room. But to actually have security have to manually or physically toss them out the door. I don't think we support that, Rick. No, not at all. Yeah, social workers are usually there in the morning. There's, they have all kinds of resources for helping folks like this. So it's kind of yeah. a, a no-brainer in my Oh, yeah, nine o'clock, 9 o'clock is a magic hour around hospitals. Monday through Friday, 9 to about 4, you can occasionally find people. Now, this brings us to my, the next department, And that is, over the next few months, I want to be talking about uh, something I I started to work on with uh, my partner, Neil Little, many, many years ago. And that was the emotional hijacking of the physician, nurse, tech, PA, whoever it is. Because the problem with the way we give care is... If you ask a healthcare person a specific scientific question, they frequently get it right. The problem is the baggage that comes with that patient makes it very difficult. Mike's piece reminded me of this is just one of the groups of people that we sometimes don't take a step back and take a deep breath and ask questions. So I want to present a little list to you, Rick, and see if you've ever been, say, hijacked emotionally by these people first group is drug seekers i think that that the, at the top of the list that's is the this, top is of this, the list isn't it this is not in alphabetical order i think <laughs> it is not in alphabetical order but when i look and see who's angry who's mad why the nurses want to take them out and beat them where we're starting to do irrational things not recheck the vital signs, not do this, not do that. Drug seekers always seem to go to the top of the list because they have the incredible ability to push every one of your emotional buttons. Well, this is another case where you better be damn sure 
that this person has no active medical problem that's going on, which can be made worse by delay. And this is, it's going to be delay because they're, they're going to be put off. They're going to be asked to leave. They're going to be given no medication when, when in fact they do. This is a coincidence, Greg. The column I wrote for AP Monthly this month is entitled, We're Not the Problem, Leave Us Alone. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I see all of these regulations and guidelines and being promulgated. I haven't read most of them, honestly, but I think that they all come down to use less narcotics and give fewer of them out, and the indications for them should probably be not where they are now, but you got to have more, more, more than one broken bone or something like right. that. They, some, some total BS. And one of my problems is, is that there are people who have chronic pain. You can't diagnose it in terms of it's back pain. How are you going to die? You know, is there is no blood test for back pain. They're going to tell you they've had it before. And frankly, these people do have exacerbations and they come in and they're seeking genuine treatment and everybody rolls their eyes. Oh, Frank's back. He's got his back pain again kind of thing. And what are their responses to be? You, you're going to be a hard ass and give them two Vicodin. They're going to go out. Where are they going to go? They're going to go to the next emergency room because they still have pain. Or the next one. And you, then you go to the uh, internet program and says, well, look, you've been doctor shopping. They've been doctor shopping because nobody would take care of their problem. Well, I think that uh, each one of us has been sucked into this. It's interesting that if most patients, we give them total crap if they don't know their medicines and their dosages. You know, well, you've got diabetes. You should know what you're taking, how much, this, that, and another thing. It's just the opposite with pain seekers. If they do know their dosage and they do know what they want, then they're a drug seeker. I, 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 you know, several years ago, I, we made the comment that we don't do that with the asthma patients. Nobody says he's an oxygen seeker. There he goes. He's an abuser. <laughs> he's an abuser oxygen of oxygen. Oxygen abuser. Yeah. I bet he'd like it to be instead of like 20% in the air, he'd like it to be like 22 or 23. <laughs> no, we're not going to put up with so that kind I, of stuff. I guess one of our concerns, frankly, is that the pendulum is going to swing and people who have real pain are going to be hurt by this. Yeah. Well, actually, if you look at all the numbers... Do we write from the emergency department for pain medicine? Of course, we only write for two things 90% of the time, antibiotics and pain medicine. But the, but the total number of tablets written in this country, we're a pimple on this problem. We're nothing. A tiny pimple. A tiny pimple. We hear, here's 10 Vicodin tablets. You realize that, that a lot of the family practice and internal medicine people they're writing, they're writing for 150 tablets of 200 tablets. We're not the problem. And Rick, I think that the piece you've uh, written on this, everybody read it because I think it's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to bring this right to the top. Yeah, I'm tired of them, you know, pointing their finger at the emergency department when, in fact, I have in the column I wrote an abstract that we did yes. that basically said doctors 
are generally fairly conservative. They give out, on average, about three days of narcotics. Now, I don't know whether, frankly, three days of narcotics, if you have a broken ankle, three days of narcotics is not adequate enough. So that, that doesn't mean that they're doing a great job on pain control. Maybe, maybe not, maybe. But the, but the whole article got to the point was, they're giving out about three days worth of pills. That's not going to turn the world into a, a, you know, a bunch of heroin addicts. No, it's to do two things. We should remember that we never make addicts in the emergency department, and by denying pain medicine, we never cure addicts. I would certainly want to err on the side of treating and let somebody fool me yeah. than, than not. Yeah, and, and it's interesting that in all my years of doing this, the nurses were harder asked on this than the docs. You know, they'd seen somebody in before, they didn't want to, you know, they say, well, so-and-so's back again. You know, are, are you going to be the candy man? Are you going to give them anything? We need to stay away from And when that. this all started, there were these hospitals that were putting up signs in their waiting room indicating they were not going to be giving any narcotics under certain circumstances. And fortunately, CMS said, you got to take those things down because you're going to be discouraging people from getting a medical screening exam with those signs up. And right. I think that, honestly, it is true. All right, next in our am I cal- little section. Am I, am I calming down? Yeah, yeah. Rick, <laughs> take, take another lisinopril and your blood pressure will be back down. Is the patient with low pain tolerance, i.e., and way, the way they put it, however, is, oh, you know I have a high pain tolerance. Uh, whenever we hear that out of any patient, what's our immediate assumption? They're a wimp. We immediately assume they're a wimp. Doctor, I have a high pain tolerance, and I, but I, thought, I will I, need this. I yes. thought it was the other way around. I have a low pain tolerance. I need analgesics. I think we got the words backwards. But in any case, we know who we're talking about. And yeah, we're also yeah. talking about the phrase symptom magnifier. Right. Exactly. I love that phrase. Oh, he's a symptom magnifier. He just, it only looks like his arm's cut off. He's a symptom magnifier. Well, that's the whole basis of uh, Reagan's comic piece about the pain score, which you have played at uh, many of the programs. Remember? Oh, I think that's an eight. Brian Reagan. It's an eight. Say eight. It's a six. Say eight. (laughs) Yes, exactly. And he says, well, you know, I think the people who have like a rupturing uh, aortic aneurysm, they get a ten. They get a pass on a ten. No, no. It was the woman in labor who gets a ten. Who gets a ten. Who then breaks her femur. Right. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) The third one where we will often be put off is whining. The problem is you put the wrong personality types together. Whenever you take AAA personalities, which are emergency or emergency doctors, they tend to be, uh, you know, wooden ships, iron men, gut it out, shut up kind of thing. And you put them with someone who whines all the time. I think that it starts to negatively influence you're taking them seriously for their various disease processes. And as soon as they start whining about a second complaint, the immediate action is, sorry, sorry, ma'am, you're here for one thing. That's it. It's called the chief complaint. Chief complaint, right, for a reason. We do chief complaints. And I, I think that we have to listen, and, and frequently we have to say, well, we can't deal with that one tonight, but I know someone who can. But I think whining is, is 
very low level, but it goes on all the time, and physicians and nurses and PAs and techs don't want to hear whining. It's, it's not good. So just understand, when you've got a patient who's made you angry or is raising your blood pressure, take a deep breath, step out into the room, and say, you know... I got to look at their complaints like I do everybody else. Yeah, it definitely is a trap for making mistakes. Absolutely. And we all have to acknowledge that some of us have certain prejudices against certain patients. It's not something that we're proud of, but the fact is it's there. No, the only mistake you can make about prejudice against patients is not to recognize your problem. That is, if you have certain patients that you know get under your skin. And I used to have in some of the courses, have people sit down and I say, write a list of those people who make you angry. And I said, now, I want you to memorize that list. And every time you see one of those, I want you to tell yourself before you walk in the room, I've got to be careful because these are the kinds of people I'm going to make a mistake on. See, everybody loves... That great old guy, one complaint, he's lovely, and you do his chest x-ray and he's got a gigantic cancer. I mean, everybody can love him. It's the, it's the person with almost no findings that uh, we have trouble with, I think. Am I allowed to make confession and clear my soul? Yes. I've told you this before, but... There was a group of people that I just categorically had a hard, hard time with consistently, consistently. And maybe it was probably my wiring that caused it. But I flunked gypsies. And we had a bunch of gypsies around us kind of thing. And we all I'm not going to give you the list of all the reasons I was became prejudiced towards gypsies, because it is a prejudice. But the fact of the matter is, is that a lot of them were still genuinely ill yes. kind of thing. And <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. You know, I think a lot of us would put that in the group. Then the last one I want to mention today, and we'll, we'll do this over the next few months, is noncompliance. Well, where did they tell you to go? You didn't go there. Where did you do this? Did you take the medicine? Did you call your doctor? Did blame you try the patient. Blame the patient. And I think that, that although it makes us feel better... It doesn't get to where we want to go, which is to to diagnose and treat their problem. Now, you and I have all seen patients who have been other places and were misdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. They had something. I always remember this one mother that the nurse was giving trouble to about her, her, her child with pink eye. And she said, no, I took the antibiotics and this is not getting better. I, I rolled the eyelid. And there was a there was a cockle burr caught under that eyelid, which was continuing to lacerate that child's cornea. Now, did we, we, the last thing that mother wanted to hear out of the nursing staff or the rest of us was that she that she was uh, she was non-compliant in healthcare. Yeah, you know there are certain nurses who who uh, just feel the necessity to be. The, the scolder, you know, the, uh, I, in our department, there were two or three who you can count on to be kind of 
getting on the patients because they didn't do this or didn't do that or unwrapped the baby because it's got a fever and, you know, all of this. Don't you know this kind of thing? Now, it wasn't probably that blatant, but I can tell you there that there were many, many patients who over the years, and it was a long number of years, but we had very little turnover in our staff. Uh, the same nurses were the ones who were kind of like, you know, they they were very pedantic with the mothers and yeah. it, it, rather than... Well, I would say this, Rick, it's all of us. I, th- I think well, that... Well, speak for yourself, doctor. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> I'm not picking on any one group. I think that techs and PAs and docs and nurses and everybody can get involved in this. But the best thing is you're asking questions and it's the way you ask the question. So you didn't go to so-and-so or you did get the antibiotics and started to put them in the child's eye. You're getting information, but you've got to make sure as you're asking that information, you're not doing it in such a way that you're scolding the patient. Try and avoid that as a, as a technique. So anyway, those are some thoughts I had about this and that, uh, I, you know, when you look at actual lawsuits and read the depositions, it's not pure science that causes lawsuits. It's uh, how did they feel about the process? Well, we're not even interested in this getting to the point of a lawsuit because in the vast majority of the cases, there's been no no harm done or breaches or any of those things that would allow a lawsuit to occur. But what it does create is our unhappy patients. And unhappy patients, if they are get unhappy enough, people will now feel empowered they say, I, I want to talk to the administrator. And many of them will do, will do that. When they get so annoyed with your behavior, they will do that. And then the last thing that you want is the CEO to know that there are some interpersonal problems related to you, the doctor or the, or the, or the provider relating to patients. They have no sympathy for that, no sympathy whatsoever. And um, they have some very powerful ways to fix the problem yes oh no, no. There's, there's there's no question and you know as as the contract holder you do not want any of your little angels getting you in trouble no and the three things that we're trying to teach the clinicians downstairs are first of all the medicine and that is by far the majority of what we're talking about you got to learn the medicine it's hard there's lots of it number two you have to make the patients happy. And we talked about that for about an hour, about how to make the patients happy, and why it's such a priority. And the third thing is you need to learn how to chart. And we're going to spend an hour on charting. You're going to need to know all three of those things if you're going to be a star in your department. Yep. Some are easier to learn than others, but, you, but the, it's a package deal. All right, next, we've got, a, we've got a case I want to discuss that sets a precedent for the future. That's Wood versus Kinnett. This is a Michigan Court of Appeals case, docket number 325-296, March 2016. Now, this isn't directly related to emergency medicine. It's related to a dental practice. But the reason it's important to us is they said a dental patient is allowed to assert a malpractice vicarious liability claim against a dental corporation even if the specific dentist is not identifiable until a complaint is filed. This is the movement which is happening. And it, 
it wouldn't matter whether it's an ER doc or this or that. Medicine is becoming more corporate, no matter how you look at it. What the Supreme, what the Appellate Court of Michigan basically said is, that's right. You can sue the entity, no matter what that entity is, and it's their job to find out about the doctor. Because a lot of these practices, particularly in dentistry, people dentists come and go a lot out of these uh, situations. People don't know who they are. So what they've basically said in this complaint or in this decision is that it's not up to the patient to have to know everything and everybody. Just pick on somebody and then that entity has the responsibility of identifying the the doctor. It is not going to be the problem of the patient. You know, I, I understand where they went on this. People don't know anymore who their doctors are. And uh, people float in and out, and the larger the corporations get, the more I think this is just going to be a corporate question. So every time a physician gets in trouble, it's usually pretty easy to identify who that physician is, but they may sue the employer, who may be a large, large, large company. Right. Or even if the physician was an independent contractor, those who contracted with that physician may be viewed in to be, to be culpable because they didn't check their quality of their work. There was uh, some problem, previous problems that they didn't look at. They didn't, you know, the credentialing process went awry. Well, listen, I have several cases going on right now where the attempts to penetrate the corporate veil are uh, continuous. You've got to remember that some of these corporations are set up so that they have a state corp which is held by the national organization. The bigger emergency medicine groups, for example, have a state one. So does that mean that the plaintiff does not have access to the monies generated by the national organization? This, uh, uh, you know, I've appeared in a bunch of these uh, cases, uh, given depositions. This is a very difficult question, Rick. Move on. Uh, listen, do you want to do an email? Let's do some emails. Here's one, and it's interesting that it is asked, given the fact that we just had an ultrasound um, and procedural workshop for the PAs and MPs and primary care physicians. The question is, are non-ultrasound-guided central lines considered below the standard of care? I think the answer to that is very straightforward. The answer to that is no. No, absolutely, and there is at least there are at least two papers that say that the difference wa- was not significant between the two groups. People miss central lines with ultrasound. There's going to be a group of physicians, mostly in now in their late 40s, 50s, and 60s, who were not trained with that instrument, but have put in thousands of central lines. So as far as I'm concerned... It is not at this point in time to be considered below the standard of care. Yeah, no way. And even if you were just to ask somebody as an expert witness, well, the standard is what everybody does. And this makes the distinction between there may be techniques that are better than what is the standard. In this case, ultrasound is better than landmark. I don't think there's any question about that. But 
the 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 better quality care is still has not become the standard. Maybe someday it will be the standard, but it isn't now. You're right. I I don't think there's any indication that uh, people who are again late 40s, 50s, Old 60s, people. 70s uh, like us that that because you weren't trained with that instrument does not mean that you're practicing an inferior or substandard quality of care. This fellow also made a email relating to a rather complicated Mtala question. And I think that if we went through this Mtala question on the air, there would be somnolence throughout yeah. the land. <laughs> yes, I think that's screw, Rick. So what I've done is I've asked Bob Bitterman, our Mtala expert. The guru. The guru to address it. And I, what I'm going to do is I'm going to email Bob's response to this physician. And Bob, we are extraordinarily appreciative of you taking the time to answer this, this question. But I don't think it has enough broad appeal to make it applicable to or worthy to be on this recording. Okay. All right. Next email. Jim Lorenzano. Yes. <laughs> Did you see? I, I can summarize this. Uh, Jim Lorenzano was in need of CME credit. Yes. Uh, to get, you know, you have to keep, maintain your license. And so he found out that risk management monthly, you take an exam, you get CME credit. The problem was, and so he binged, you know, instead of binge watching, he binge listened and binge tested. That would kill me. Yeah, <laughs> that's what he did. I couldn't listen to us. Go ahead. In any case, uh, he got the CME credit that he needed. But on our program, not only do you have to take a CME test, you have to pass that test. Right. And it's it's 80%, but for crying out loud, it's an open book test. In any case, he's suggesting that the pass rate be lowered analogously to your age. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, if you're 100, you only need to get 50% right. Right. Thanks, Jim. Uh, we're going to put that right into the round file. Right. Uh, exactly. Okay. And, and by the way, if we ever propose that to the people who accredit us for CME, <laughs> you and I would be tossed in the round file. It's not going anyplace, Jim. What can I tell you? All right. Ryan Acunto. Yes. That's yours, Greg. Well, let's talk about, this is medical clearance for psychiatric patients. Brian raises a question which, which drives doctors nuts everywhere. What does it mean when they come in? And he's concerned about the fact that some people may want us to word our findings to try and relieve them of all liability. Let me give you three points about clearing people for psych. Number one, you can never say in a 10-minute emergency department visit that someone does not have an organic disease somewhere. What you can say is that there's no organic process at this moment in time uh, which would prevent them from going to the psych unit. But I don't think you can ever attest that there is no potential medical problem. What you can say is, yeah, you know, we did the usual things. They look like they're okay to go to psych. That's all we can do. So just, just remember, Brian, the last thing you want is to have somebody believe that you've given them a full 
internal medicine one-hour workup in the emergency department before they went to the psych unit. That didn't happen. And as, as patients change up on psychiatry, up in the psychiatry floors, somebody's got to take responsibility. Here's the problem. When you go to a psych unit, most people up there, the nurses, the techs, the doctors, all believe that your problems are psychiatric. You know, it must be because you set them to the psych floor. So the best thing you can do in emergency medicine is have red flags that say, no, they shouldn't go to the psych floor. If they have abnormal vital signs, I don't know of any psychiatric diseases that cause that. You know, if you're febrile and confused, maybe we ought to think about meningitis or encephalitis or something like that and not a psych problem. By the way, you are allowed to have two diseases. The worst thing you can have coming into a hospital emergency department is a previous diagnosis of schizophrenia because now... They believe that this must be a manifestation of that disease. So with these red flags, abnormal vital signs, positive findings of, of any kind, if it looks organic to you in the department, it's organic. And I think that most of those patients should go to a medicine service and get psych consultation rather than the other way around. Well, he said that their psychiatrist would like this statement to be medically discharged from the emergency department. He said, well, what if I wrote that down and some nurse kind of wasn't really attuned to what the heck we were doing and discharged the patient? Well, you know, I think it's a little far-fetched. Yes, but yes. He's, here's what he writes. At this time, there's no evidence of a non-behavioral medical emergency that would preclude admission or transfer for further psychiatric and medical treatment. I, I agree with that completely. That's Brilliant. what we can do. Brilliant. Brilliant. So do it. That, 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 that's what we ought to do <laughs> He here. says, however, the psychiatrists are not too happy with his statement. Well, <laughs> that's life. <laughs> yes, that's life. I, I mean, the bottom line, if, the, if they want to guarantee that there's no medical problem, that's why they went to medical school, too. And they need to they need to un- be attuned to that. Problem. We understand what their concern is. We yeah. we do, but we cannot guarantee or immortality here. Next one is a note from Roger Perry. He's the risk manager for a group of 120 physicians. God, that's a lot. All are required to get either risk management monthly or participate in the program from Dan Sullivan's group. And we like Dan. Dan's been on this program. He's That's a great true. guy. Well, we obviously like the risk management alternative better. <laughs> right, we do. <laughs> Much better. Or they could get both, Rick. What about double coverage, doing both things? We could, you could do both. We're not against that. He raises the serious question and... I want to try and do this without becoming political or, or overly aggressive here, but he gets into the question of naloxone, Narcan, and asks a serious question. Are we now required, as part of handling these patients, are we required, is it the standard of care, for us to be writing prescriptions for Narcan for a patient who's had an opioid overdose. Debate the issue, Rick. 
Well, it's obviously not the standard of care because it's it's what it's not what most doctors do. Right. Correct. So that that part we put aside. The other issues are very legitimate. However, is it reasonable to start considering this? We've never even this was never even an option before, and so the idea is this person does have an overdose. There are we we wake them up. They're in the department for a while. You think that they're able to go home, kind of thing, and. Mom and dad are there, or sister and brothers are there, and uh, would it not be reasonable to make Narcan available to this person who is clearly using parental opiates? And I think that that makes a lot of sense to me. And no, it's not a standard of care issue. No, I will not be faulted, I don't think, for not doing it. But I think that now that we have this option and that it is acceptable in the community, in fact, in California, you can get it from the pharmacist. They don't need you uh, to intervene here. It seems to me that we ought to get the word out on the street that this is a reasonable thing to do. Do you have some reason to say that that's not the case? Yeah, I do, as a matter of fact. Oh, there and, you go. Okay. Let me, let, uh, let me just raise, let me raise a couple of issues. If you're going to drink of this well, drink deeply. For example, let's say the family, you've given them a prescription for the auto injectors, which by the way, Rick, <laughs> you real, realize cost about 600 bucks a piece. Well, right? I don't know that they're that much, but they're hundreds and hundreds of dollars. So right. to raise up, the, if you're a drug seeker or drug user, unemployed, you're going to have to, you know, basically rob a radio out of some car in the doctor's parking lot to pay for this stuff. Yeah, I I think that was big in the 1950s, Rick. You know, blackboard jungle, that sort of thing. And, I don't think we take radios out of doctors' cars anymore. But or a GPS, a GPS. Or but let me tell you what the real problem here is. If you're a family member and you have an injector, do you understand the fact that 10 minutes later they're under again? Well, I think that when you do this, there's got to be in conjunction with it. All of the instructions, all of the warnings, all of the, this needs to be pre-printed kind of thing. There's clearly a bunch of instructions that need to go along with this thing. The auto injector does give you a lot of information for 600 or 500 or $400 about how to use this thing. And they also has two cartridges. Right. So that if you, if you go down again, there's a second one. But in any case, I think there needs to be a wrapping of all kinds of instruction that are given to... The folks who are getting this stuff, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I see, because I think that to think that we can just distribute bottles of Narcan. Narcan, by the way, is a very cheap drug. It's the delivery system. If I was the parent who had a, had a kid like this, maybe what you need is a uh, syringe and a bottle of the Narcan. Uh, uh, right. You don't, you, you don't need an auto injector. No, by no uh, means. No, this is this is a very simple thing. The other thing is if you have a bottle of Narcan, you, you've got the other doses that they may need two or three doses before the ambulance gets there, depending on where you are. But I don't want people thinking this is a panacea of any kind. It is a potentially dangerous practice to let people who are not at least aware of the side effects out there running around with injectors. Well, maybe we should get ASAP to come up with a subcommittee of a subcommittee to come up with a one-pager on what patients should be told about this. If, But, you know, I don't know that ASAP's in that kind of business because 
It implies some liability. It implies uh, some liability. But the, well, why uh, don't you do it? Well, I, you know what? I'm, I'm getting crazy enough about this particular issue that I think when we give that medicine out, and I'm not against that. I mean, there are people who do go down and are going to have trouble. But you and I have both spent many nights with patients who came in. We gave them the Narcan. They woke up. They were, they were, although awake and relatively alert, they wanted to get the hell out of there. I had a, I had a guy chew me out because I'd ruined his $50 high, and uh, he, was, he was all mad about it. And his friends just were afraid, were afraid for him because his respirations had slowed to damn near nothing. So I think that it, to think that it's a simple process without any liability associated with it, I don't know that that's the case, Rick. Well, we do hand out aftercare instructions on which we have some information that is very important to the person's health. Mm-hmm. So this could be viewed as analogous to aftercare instructions. We would have the instructions. We would ask them to verbalize back the instructions. We would ask them to sign the instructions. Right. We have a witness sign the instructions kind of thing so that it, we've made it as clear as possible that we've tried to educate the people. in Because this is about life-saving treatment. And so it's like I don't want to turn my back on this and say, well, it's too, uh, too risky. Uh, the whole country is moving forward to provide naloxone to these folks who are chronically addicted. Yep. There's a, uh, he asked a couple of other questions really of this. What are the medical legal ramifications of prescribing or not prescribing? What I would say right now is it's too early to know. I don't know of a case where an emergency physician was sued for not providing the drug. I have yet to see the case. And of course, each court and each experience is its own event. Now, there are going to be states, unlike California, where it's, they can't just go to the pharmacy and get it yet. I don't know what to tell them about this, except that if there's a bad outcome in a young person, there's always a potential liability. And because we could say, well, it's not currently the standard of care, in a courtroom someplace, in a state where you can't go to the pharmacy and get the stuff... I can think of a series of questions you should you can ask that doctor, which would at least make him sweat in front of the jury. I was only trying to help out. Yeah, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, Roger, I, we hope that has helped you out. Understand that it is an evolving area at this point in time. And I'm not sure what else we can say about this at uh, at this moment. Well, it would be very interesting to go to the pharmacy here in uh, well in Los Angeles and see the mechanism by which they uh, do this because I've gotten to know the pharmacist on a first name basis, given the fact that I'm usually in there for thirty or forty different pills a week. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> oh, hi, Doctor Bucata. <laughs> Oh, geez. But in any case, I, I think that I might check it out because I'm sure they've gotten this whole thing down so they have instructions and all kinds of things like that. Right. And they make you sign for when you're getting your your Pneumovax shot, for crying out loud. Right. What about, Rick, What's uh, we've got something here from Randy Danielson. What do you think? Oh, he sent us this paper, and um, it covers the period between 
2004 and 2014. And for uh, it's it's a study which is uh, quoted. Uh, the citations in your in, will be in your notes. For physicians, the risk of an adverse event and malpractice range from 10 to 17 per thousand providers. Now, this is not unique to emergency medicine. This is all physicians. Right. While it ranged from 1.4 to 2.4 for PAs and uh, I think nurse providers. So we're talking about PAs getting sued something like eight times less than uh, physicians, at least for the time being. During the study period, rates of malpractice declined among physicians, remained steady in, in NPs, and increased slightly in PAs. Well, we know about the decline in malpractice for physicians. That's been a, a trend for the last, I don't know, five years, six years, seven years? Yeah, probably 10. However, payouts have remained steady for PAs and NPs and have decreased slightly among physicians. Well, I was kind of of the belief that payouts were going down as well, but I'm hearing something that suggests that there are more and more mega winners now so that although the number of suits has gone down, the number of mega winners is tending to offset the dollar issue. Yes. Let me just say why this kind of data is very difficult to look at. Because a PA is rarely sued on a case. If there's also an MD that or a doctor, there's almost always a physician sued along with the PA. Also, we don't know how many of these cases there was a PA involved, but they only chose to sue the physician because the physician's assistant is just that, the physician's assistant. So I think it's very difficult to know what this data means. I agree, and I I did not look up this paper. This was uh, something presented, uh, it was a poster presented at the 2016 Annual Meeting of the American Academy of Physicians Assistants in May of this past year. Right. and I th- So this is hot off the press. This right? is hot off the press, and I think the, the problem is uh, we just need to be aware that malpractice is handled differently in different regions in different states who you involve who the pa works for for example if there's a pa working in the department and they're the employee of the hospital by virtue of suing the hospital as well the pa is involved but he may not be he or she may not be separately named in the action so because they are the agent and servant of the hospital. So I think this still has to shake out. Uh, what's really going to happen, I think, Rick, is if you look at California emergency physicians that said last year at the meeting, 40% of their visits were seen by PAs or NPs, not seen at the same time by a physician. If we follow that kind of data and those kinds of trends, we're going to know a lot more in five years as to what the real liabilities are. Well, I should say that California Emergency Physicians is is uh, being represented here and are recruiting here. And I did get a chance to talk to the reps. And, man, they have a full court press initiative to get and train PAs and NPs. Yes, they do. Absolutely. Okay, next email. We're hearing from Scott Hickey. 
wanted us to be aware of a case in which a man's estate is suing a physician for $7.5 million. The patient had a seizure while driving and ran into a van, which then ran into a man's house, killing the occupant immediately. The driver had a known history of seizures, and yet the doctor cleared him to drive. And there's a small side note here. A neurologist, obviously involved somehow in this case, advised that he not drive. So so now we've got a mess. Let's, let's review what's happening here. We're talking about an a, um, unknown but predicted third party who feels they are harmed by the physician because he didn't take some action for this patient with a disease. The seizure question varies from state to state. In California, seizures have to be reported to the Department of Motor Vehicles, I believe. Yes, they do, as a dis- part of a cluster of disorders characterized by lapses of consciousness. In the state of Michigan, there is no place to report these people. That's we ridiculous. Are, well, I, Rick, <laughs> what I, all I'm telling you is we have to tell people that they shouldn't drive or operate, you know, motor vehicles, shouldn't do this. Or <laughs> Whenever that. they say, don't operate machinery, I always think of them driving like a, some diesel caterpillar, <laughs> you know. <laughs> People do, Rick. And so we're supposed to tell them not to do that for six months or until cleared by a physician. And the truth of the matter is, if we, if we wanted to report them, Michigan has no system of reporting for seizures or loss of consciousness we don't have anywhere to go so i think the 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 onus on the physician is to know what their state wants with this type of disorder there have been studies in fact uh, we published in in the um, emergency medical abstract yes exactly there are at least two studies that say the accident rate of people with diagnosed seizure disorder is no different than that of the general public. I mean, because this person had an had an accident does not mean it was the result of their seizure disorder. And and I, I think before we suspend a, a liberty, it's, it's not truly a, a liberty, a driver's license is not a right. It's a privilege extended by the state. But before we stop extending those privileges, and by the way, this isn't the only thing that's going to be looked at with regard to this, but before we take that away, we better have some real data that says these people are actually more dangerous than everybody else. Well, this is like about the uh, child abuse reporting. We're not, we're just reporting them to the state for the state to ascertain whether there uh, been child abuse exactly. occurring, whether there has been a problem which will result in their license being taken. We're not doing that. Yep. So basically, all we're turning them over to is an investigative element of the state to w- look into this. By the way, the, the uh, largest growing group of people in the United States is not children, it's not this, it's, not, it's old people. And uh, the state of Michigan... What you, what you saying, Winner Willis? <laughs> I understand that. 
but my mother-in-law, who's a lovely lady and perfectly with it, and it will have her 97th birthday uh, in, <laughs> it's in a young chippy. Yeah, in, in still has her driver's license. Now she hasn't had an accident. She only drives in the light and only locally. She doesn't go on the highway. But there's going to be a real question. Since this is not a right, it's a privilege, what are we going to do about checking these people? I mean, she went down to the, uh, to the uh, state and it, when it came time for her to get her license, and they had her read the, what you have to read. And the guy said, are you otherwise okay? She said, yeah. And just signed the thing and off she goes. She's, she's got the potential now, Rick, to have that license till she's 99. Well, my mom's only a 94, and she prefers not to drive at night. That's that's something that happens. Yeah. She does drive on the highway because she lives on a highway and um, doesn't have much choice. She goes to Mass every morning praying for my eternal soul. <laughs> well, that would take the entire day, Rick. <laughs> Going to the High Mass. High Mass. Okay, very good. But she goes to Kmart. Walmart, you know, you name the Mart, she's there. Yeah. And um, taking driving away from her would really, really clip her wings. And yet I certainly understand what it would be like on the other side of the coin if there was an accident because her surely her reflexes and those kinds of musculoskeletal things are not up to what younger people's are. Yeah, they're just not as good. Rick, do you have, I think we've done our emails. No, I, I, well, I get some cases here, Chief. Okay, let's do the cases. I got a case. Even I have cases now. I wanted to acknowledge that these cases, unless otherwise specified, all come from the same place. This guy, uh, Louis Laska, publishes a thing called Medical Malpractice Verdict Settlements and Experts. And you can subscribe to that if you are inclined. It has all kinds of cases. It is not obviously just emergency medicine. It's every specialty. Right. And speaking of Mr. Laska, he wrote an article directed to other malpractice plaintiffs' attorneys entitled, Why You Lose Healthcare Liability Cases. This is an outrageous article, but it's, it's so outrageous that it's funny. Rick, it's how lawyers think. Okay, to them, it's not outrageous. <laughs> and basically, the summary of this article is throw a lot of shit against the wall and see what sticks. You know, have have crazy ideas. And who knows, some juror may go for he it. Really, he really was very, very candid in this um, article. Yeah. I took. He said there were 11 things that you needed to know to, to attack the defenses of the um Of the, the physician, yes. yes. First of all, he says is the secret to winning healthcare liability cases is overcoming defenses. Okay. The good malpractice attorney will anticipate and overcome each offense. There's no penalty for raising frivolous defenses, that he says. And the more defenses, the more likely the jury will side with the healthcare provider. Look at all these defenses. One of them's got to be right kind of thing, you know. Right, right, exactly. It only takes one defense argument that is brought by the jury to win a case. Now, that's kind of an interesting idea. I'm going to give you 10 defenses. You pick the one you like. Once you picked it, I win. But in all fairness to Mr. Laska, 
he can throw all kinds of theories about why the patient died. You know, if you, and if one gets proven wrong, he'll throw another theory up and another theory up. Okay, here's where, where he gets into the 11. Def- there are, he says there are only 11 defenses in a malpractice case. First of all, and I took out some that didn't relate to emergency medicine. Right. right. No breach of the standard of care. Okay, we'll give him that one. Independent intervening cause. Something else caused the problem. In other words, somebody else, not the patient himself, caused the injury. Yes, okay. and, I've, and I've had cases like that. It wasn't me. Yeah, where they, they tried to blame the doctor for, for something which was totally ridiculous, letting someone go, and then they got into another altercation or another fight or something like that. It, it can't, you can't stop everybody from living, Rick. Number three, the medical records don't reflect what actually happened. The, pro- the problem with the medical record is it is what it is, which means it's a double-edged sword. If you've written a great record, I think that that stops about 90% of malpractice cases. But it's when, it's when there's nothing written or there are conflicts in the record between the nurse and the doctor that you got a problem. So medical records, okay. One thing I wanted to bring up, though, is this, there is this dissynchrony between electronic medical records, which is timing you every second that is going by. You, you did some action to the patient 10 minutes ago. You go to chart that. It is charted 10 minutes later when you actually did the charting. But, Rick, that was the same when it was handwritten. At the end of a code, you may have written your note unless there's someone independently charting at the time it takes place, it is almost always a summary instrument. You know, at at 2.42, they put down the tube. At 2.43, they did this or that. You've got to have an independent charter on that sort of thing. Although, what if it's on a less serious matter and you went in and saw the patient and adjusted their oxygen flow because you it was a little on the low side. You want to get the saturated up, up a bit. You did that 10 minutes ago. You met note in the record that you did that. But your note is not when it occurred. Your note is when you wrote the note. So there is this, you're not able to create an accurate timeline. I've been asked that question in court when they say, well, doctor, shouldn't he have written it down when he did it? And I said, you know, would you rather him take care of the patient or write on the paper? Can't you say the note is being written at noon, but at 11.50, I adjusted the oxygen? I suppose you could say that, but I've never seen that the real determiner. And I think that most juries understand the fact that there's going to be some time interval changes between doing it and writing it down. I I don't think that's a huge problem. Potassium results have returned at 6.0. You write that in your note. When did those potassium results actually get noted by you? It was certainly before the time you wrote it in the note. And in some of these things that are time urgent, the computer is not helping you. Well, it it may not. (laughs) It may not. Okay. Honest mistake. It was an honest mistake of judgment. That was another defense. It was just an honest mistake. I didn't intend to hurt anybody. It was an honest mistake. And I think that's true. I think you and I, I just had dinner with some physicians who were relating horror stories on their own families. 
And, of course, one of them was an appendix case. Is there going to be a difference of opinion? And might we not decide it's appendicitis on the first visit? The answer is, yep. It was an honest mistake in judgment to say not a surgical abdomen at this moment. But but you know what? We're all going to have those. I think there are legitimate, honest mistakes in medicine. Here's what he says. It was an honest mistake. No harm was intended. He said, that sounds great, but it is not a bona fide legal defense. Well, it, it, it's going to be a discussion of experts as to where judge where is the range of, of reasonable physician judgment. He says, this is a great, from a practical point of view, defense. The jury will suck it up. Yeah. No harm intended. It was an honest mistake. Come on now. By the way, if harm had been intended, then it's a criminal question. <laughs> you understand Details, that. details. Okay, next. The noble physician defense. I like that one. That no harm intended, no this or that. How could you think that this guy uh, would ever do anything wrong or spiteful or hurtful to the patient? I think that we, we probably do use that defense occasionally, but you know what? I don't think juries buy that much anymore. Doctors aren't held to the same high plateau that they once were. No harm was caused by anything the doctor uh, did or failed to do because the patient was going to die anyway. And you know what? In a lot of cases that come into the emergency department, that's exactly right. Greg, I have four cases here. We have gone 61 minutes. You you just were jabbering away there. What could I say? Jabbering away. What could I say? Listen, let's do at least one of these One case. Go ahead. Kick it off. Pick your favorite here. Do you have, do you have any favorites? Well, do this. Do the case case one here. The 16-year-old male presented to the emergency department with severe abdominal pain in the right lower quadrant. What's he got, Rick? Appendicitis, of course. Of course he's got. Any idiot knows that. He had treatment for his nausea and vomiting. An ultrasound and a CT of the abdomen were negative. It's like belt and suspenders. <laughs> yeah. We get the whole thing done yeah. twice. I, I, I don't want to start on my feelings about the CT in appendicitis in a 16-year-old boy, but a general surgeon was consulted. Well, that's the height of, of uh, science. The patient was discharged home. The patient returned the following day with what? Right testicular pain. It was asserted that his genitalia were not examined. Three hundred. Should we give the result here? Sure. Okay. Three hundred thousand dollars settlement for the testicular torsion. You know what, Rick? If you've got a kid with an abdominal pain, lower abdominal pain, I don't know why you wouldn't check. See, this there would be no case here. If what he'd done is said, genitalia, non-tender. That's all that case needed. Because sometimes it can be hard. The the pain fibers transcend and go down the gubernaculum in, into the scrotum That's sac. That's because, embryologically, the testes were intra-abdominal organs. As the women's movement points out, they all start out as ovaries. And that's exactly right. They start out in the abdominal cavity, and some migrate and some don't. And those that migrate down become testicles. And I think this is exactly why, in a young male with pain, you ought to, 
you ought to at least record that there's no pain in the testicles. I'm quite sure that the 16-year-old would remember if anybody was messing around with his, with his testicles. I'm sure he would. And, and, and I think that there are very few things that patients actually remember, and that, that study has been done. They talked to them 10 days after their examination. And what they did in that study is sometimes they listened to one lung and not the other. Sometimes they didn't listen to the heart. They did this or that. The only two things the patients got right were um, pelvic exams, yes or no, and did they do a rectal, yes or no. That's it. Those are the only things at the 90% level they got correct. Let's do another one. Okay. A young man presented to the ED with severe back pain and weakness in his legs. It took 4.5 hours to get a CT scan initiated, and it took another four hours to complete the scan due to the fact that the patient couldn't stay still during the the exam because of the severe pain. I have a question. Why would you do a CT scan on somebody with back pain if you believe they are compressing the spinal cord? It is not the study of choice, Rick. You might as well have done a barium enema. Yeah, I was just going to say. <laughs> you know, it's, like it's, it's not the study. <laughs> right. It is an expensive big machine, but it is not the study. Right. It's the wrong case, boys and girls. All right, catch this. Yeah. The, the emergency physician read the films and thought that everything was okay. What the heck is going on here? And the diagnosis of transverse myelitis was made. I mean, you make a time, you know, three or four times a week at diagnosis. The CT was reread the following morning by another physician who noted a paraspinal abscess. The treatment team was not immediately notified. A neurosurgeon was notified several days later. Surgery was performed, but the patient remained paraplegic to the tune of $10 million. Frankly, this person should have gotten $40 million. This is wrong test. Not read by the specialist when the patient needed the study. Not done in a timely manner. Yeah. If this was a relative of ours... We'd be unhappy. We'd be unhappy with this care. How about a Wayne County, Michigan case? Okay. We're going to send you home with a Wayne County case. Thank you. I live next to Wayne County, yes, and I testify a lot in Wayne County. A Wayne County, Michigan case, an elderly woman with some mentation changes presented to challenges. the ED. Challenges. Challenges, yes. Uh, presented to the ED with bilateral jaw displacement. A CT was performed and mislabeled, and the wrong CT showed a subdural hematoma. Surgery was performed, and no (laughs) hematoma was noted. She died nine weeks later of complications. Oh, my God, Rick. What? (laughs) (laughs) It's like... Laughable. This is yeah. This is this is bad. Uh, for, you know, there's there's no learning value for our listeners in this. This this is just dumb this is crap. just entertainment. This is just entertainment, and uh, some. Well, no, there is a part of this that I think I don't know what the heck that. It sounds like they CT'd her head because you would never CT a bilateral jaw displacement for crying out loud. I mean. That's, we see these all the time. All the time. I, I have no idea why. I don't know why it got confused. But to the plaintiff's... Mislabeling. The plaintiff's attorney who got this case must pray every day because this is a gift from God. If it's a $20 million decision, that means somewhere in the neighborhood of $8 million went into his pocket. 
you know, Rick, th- that may be even as much as you made last year. That is a lot uh, of money. Close. Yeah, it's close. Listen, let's save the next one for next month because I think we need to expand on this case a little bit about it because I think it's a really good case. I want to whet your appetite, guys, for the case we're going to do next month. In the meantime, Gregory, it is... Um, wine of the month time. We have plenty of time for wine of the month, but not enough time for this case. So do you have any other kinds of thoughts that you would like to get into before wine of the month Uh, anything that's kind of bugging you you'd like to get off your chest one thing i would like to say is that there's enough confusion and problem with what physicians say in deposition at the time of trial that i'm giving two workshops at the next asap national meeting here in las vegas in october right down the street at the mandalay bay right down the street and we're going to have two workshops on on what do you do when you get sued What's the answer to questions? How do you take control of your own situation? And how do you speak to attorneys? And I think that uh, I know we're going to get a lot of people in these workshops, and they're limited. So if you're interested, sign up now. Why would you be talking to any of our listeners about these this topic since... They all know about it since they've been listening. Yes, that's right. Uh, Don't bother going to Greg Henry's talk. You've already been told more than enough than you need to know. Okay. All right. The the last thing I was going to point out, well, wine of the month, and again, as I continue to go around, people have lots of comments. There's an interesting article this month about Costco. Now, My favorite story. I know that. And your wife's favorite wine comes, she can buy La Crema. La Crema. She can buy in huge quantities. And she does. And she does. In any event, the, uh, since 2004, they have been running this Kirkland. Everything in Costco is Kirkland. You know, Greg, the, um, Greg these pants. Yeah. Those socks. Yeah. My underwear. Yeah. My toothbrush. Rick, Rick, don't get any more graphic. Everything than this. that I own, yeah, has come from Kirkland. Kirkland, it's got it on it. Well, they are now. Kirkland is now the largest wine label in the United States. But it's interesting. What happened to Two Buck Chuck? Two Buck Chuck has gone downhill. I see. But in in any event, Kirkland did a. They did a. There's this nice article about. Is it really better, cheaper, that sort of thing? And the conclusion of the person who wrote this is. Absolutely. They looked at at some of the wines that Kirkland has, and look who put them out. And some of them are put out by Stag's Leap. The difference is, if you go over and buy the Stag's Leap stuff, it's 24 bucks a bottle. If you buy the Kirkland brand, it was was $12.95. And they went around to everywhere in the world, sort of where Kirkland has their wines made they're all made by other vintners who sell their wine right next to right next to they got extra grapes hanging around yeah they got extra grapes and so when you look at this the difference in some of the prices was as much as a 40 to 50 percent for the same wine and so for those of you who want to want to try this sort of thing, I know it's not fancy, but there is a Kirkland signature from the signature series, Russian River Chardonnay. Thus, th- this wine is made by Stag's Leap. 20 bucks for the Stag's Leap, 
$12.99 for the Kirkland brand. And as far as I'm concerned, Stag's Leap is a very quality, reputation kind of place. Well, as soon as they make a generic La Crema, my wife will get, be getting it in 55-gallon barrels kind of thing. Right, with a pump. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, that's uh, Risk Management Monthly for June. We'll see you back in, in July, and that's all for now. Bye. Thanks for listening. Uh,